when you don't have receivers that get a tanker because they fall on the cutting room floor in the JCS priority system, they're looking for somebody to help. That's where commercial tanking, that's where Matreya and our four KC-135Rs fit in. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm J.J. Gertler. And I'm Vaga Maradian. Later in the show, Dr. Tom Carrico of the Center for Strategic and International Studies joins us for his monthly update on air and missile defenses. And the U.S. Air Force recently passed a milestone with its first use of a commercial contracted aerial tanker. We'll hear from the company Matreya that made it happen. And it's all powered by GE Aerospace. GE Aerospace and the U.S. Air Force have created a revolutionary new combat aircraft engine. The XA-100 flexes to provide more fuel-efficient flight for crews and high power for combat. Learn more at geaerospace.com XA-100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage and Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And JJ, what is in the news of the week on All Wings Considered? Something that we skipped last week because of our very productive conversation with Tom Burbage. We didn't want the show to be going too long. So let's recap some of the news items from last week, as well as new ones. Well, Vago, the headline is one that's just breaking as we record this program, and it is coming from the United States Air Force. President Biden has nominated Dave Alvin, who is currently the vice chief, to be the next chief of staff of the United States Air Force, succeeding C.Q. Brown. That is, of course, if C.Q. Brown actually is able to move to a new job, which is up to the United States Senate. The Indian Navy has achieved a milestone of sorts. It has committed to buy 26 new Rafales for its aircraft carriers. That's good news for Dassault. It's not great news for Boeing, who had hopes that the F-18 might get selected. Boeing has now confirmed that because this was the last bullet in their gun, the F-18 line in St. Louis is likely to end in 2025. News from the F-35 program, not great news contained in Lockheed's quarterly reports. It looks like production of the aircraft is going to be about 50 units short this year. It's not because they can't produce it. It's not because they don't have parts. It's because of the technical refresh three suite that's getting introduced to current F-35s. Frankly, that whole system is not quite ready for prime time, has not gone through all of its testing. So the goal of 156 F-35s this year is going to be somewhere between 100 and 120, it looks like. From China comes word that the Chengdu J-20, their stealth fighter, if you can call something with large movable canards stealthy, is now flying entirely on domestic engines. The WS-15 had been demonstrated with a single engine in the plane. They now have two of them in one of the jets. What does this show us? Well, they know how to build two jet engines. We don't know anything about their durability, (laughs) their output, or how they will fare in serial production. And hey, we're going to be talking to Ty Thomas of Matreya later in the program about their achievement in commercial air refueling. If air refueling is a subject that interests you, or if you're having trouble sleeping some night, I recently did a panel on that subject at the Hudson Institute with Tim Walton, John Ludvigson of the Government Accountability Office, and retired General Thomas Sharpie talking about the past, present, and future of aerial refueling. You can find it at Hudson.org. Vago? 
JJ, as you said, the new chief takes over only if the old chief is promoted to his new job, which is to become the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to succeed uh, Mark Milley. Obviously, uh, Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville is the man who is holding up now. I think it's like 260 plus general officer promotions and uh, nominations. Uh, But I think that this falls into a pattern of the vices taking over the big job. We saw Lisa Franchetti, the vice chief of naval operations, last week to fleet up and replace Mike Gilday as the chief of naval operations. And we saw Eric Smith tap to replace Dave Berger, the outgoing and and actually now the retired commandant, right? Uh, General Smith makes the joke that he's now doing two jobs for the price of one. And, uh, you know, it ends a lot of the debate and the guessing game about who was going to replace whom. General Alvin brings a couple of interesting attributes to this job. He is by training and experience, an airlifter, the first airlifter I remember being in that job since I think Norton Schwartz. But also he's a big policy brain and has done assignments at places like the Council on Foreign Relations. He is going to be doing a lot of thinking and projecting about the future of the United States Air Force. I think that's going to be a big focus, should he be confirmed. Indeed. And there's no reason to think that he ultimately won't be confirmed if he's allowed to go to a vote on it. And you're right, JJ, obviously, Norty Schwartz was, uh, you know, started his career as a C-130 in a special operations and a highly accomplished special operations pilot in his own right, and somebody who did a terrific job uh, when he was chief. So, you know, there, there's no you know, weird signal in any of that. The chief of the Royal Air Force is an extraordinary officer who's engineering fundamental change in the service. And he's an engineer who doesn't even uh, wear wings. Uh, And yet anybody would tell you that Rich Knighton is as good an airman and as thoughtful an airman as anybody out there. You know, we mentioned on the business roundtable about the new engines uh, for the J-20. Nice observation on the canards, by the way. And also, you know, we talked about what it means for Dassault, the Indian order, but we didn't go into detail on uh, the F-18. And roughly, right, so some production decisions already start getting made on that, right? Because the U.S. US Navy deliveries are also declining. The end of that entire production line is in sight. And right now, the F-18 is, to the best of my knowledge and by Boeing's recollection, not a contender really for any new contracts. So those of us who remember the fly-off between the YF-16 and YF-17 that eventually became the F-18 are shedding a bit of a tear over the demise of a long distinguished production line. Indeed, but I would also point out that there's very, 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 uh, very little in common between the A through D airplanes and the E through F airplanes. No question. I was in uh, the United States Senate as a staffer when that was being pitched and they very carefully pitched it as an upgrade from the A to D model to the Super Hornet. They'd had the same number, it had the similar name, but they glossed over the fact that the entire outline of the aircraft was different, the dimensions of the aircraft were different, the roles of the aircraft were different, but it was pitched as just an upgrade to help it get through the process. Yeah, just like it, but totally different. Uh, I always love that whenever that scepter is raised in a programmatic thing. No, 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 it's going to look just like it, but totally different. 
It's, it's just the same, just totally different. Still a very good airplane. The United States Navy has been using it to great effect, even if, you know, the, the issue is how the Navy goes to the next generation of aircraft, which obviously is the FAXX program that's going to try to take the Navy to a little bit of a longer range uh, aircraft, kind of the capability that they lost when the F-14 uh, went away in terms of range and payload and persistence. And that's one of the big differences between the Air Force and the Navy in as they contemplate the sixth generation. Even though NGAD in the Air Force is very secret, it's clear what the Air Force is thinking about as its future and what the aircraft needs to be able to do. We haven't heard similar concepts from the Navy of what missions FAXX is intended to fill and how they anticipate it being carried out. We know less about that than we do about NGAD. And we know surprisingly little about NGAD as well, aside from the fact that it looks like it went from three down to two competitors that we reported during the Paris Air Show week. In the meantime, it is the F-35 that's giving uh, the, the Navy a lot of experience in operating stealth aircraft. The first time the service has been using a properly stealthy aircraft from its carrier decks. Even if there is some reluctance, as we heard from Tom Burbage last week, uh, to the C model, uh, those who are using it are finding that it is an airplane that's giving uh, naval aviation really a quantum fold capability uh, and then paving the way for a future low observable jet to operate from future carrier decks. Very little question there, but as we've observed before, the Air Force married the F-35. The Navy is still dating. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a great line, and I would uh, I would agree with you, right? I mean, the U.S. Air Force is several generations of stealthy aircraft uh, under its belt, uh, and there are a whole bunch of you know obviously important challenges again, as Tom uh, laid out, to operate a stealthy aircraft from carrier decks, where it is a much more a harsh environment. Uh, than a stealthy aircraft with delicate coatings that can be operated from sealed and climate-controlled hangars, as opposed to operating from carrier decks, which are among the most abrasive and harsh conditions uh, out there. Uh, and the airplane is proving that it can uh, deliver those, whether or not it's the short takeoff and vertical landing, uh, the Bravos or, or the Charlies. JJ, I think it's about time to get uh, on with the rest of the show. What do you say? I hear Tom Carrico knocking at the door. And joining us now, as he does every month, uh, with an update on global air and missile defense news is Dr. Tom Carrico, the director of the Air and Missile Defense Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, who is just back from a trip to the Indo-Pacific. Tom, always an honor and a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Bago. As I mentioned, you you were over uh, in the Indo-Pacific. You visited South Korea and Guam, two sort of hotspot issues, but more broadly, you know, the air and missile defense war is ongoing uh, with Ukraine, Russia, obviously uh, targeting uh, Ukraine's towns and cities. We want to talk a little bit more about that, about how the Russians by strategy are depleting their the Ukrainian air and missile defenses, but also targeting Ukraine's grain supplies. What are sort of the key takeaways, whether from the trip or from whatever has been happening over the past month? But what are sort of the broad takes uh, that the audience should know about? Yeah, well, you know, uh, first of all, let me say about South Korea. Uh, you know, we've seen, and this is not just about air missile defense, but we've seen the South Korean, I would say, defense industry really kind of step out. And you've seen them selling armor and artillery to Poland, as well as some aircraft, uh, FA-50 aircraft, for instance. But you've also seen in the last month, the, you know, they've gotten some new tests of their, what they call their LSAM, uh, sort of a longer range service-to-air missile. And I, I mention that because it really kind of reflects the expanded 
capacity and, and the expanded global, uh, let's just say, supply uh, side for uh, for surface-to-air missiles, for, for air defenses of different kinds. And so I said that's kind of an interesting development. They've been working on these things for many years in South Korea, and so it's good to kind of see that, uh, that coming along. And it does reflect a kind of more uh, global supply of, of these things. And then uh, on the Guam side, you know, uh, as you said, there's a lot of interest in that. Uh, it's a small island. It can't be moved. Uh, it can't be <laughs> hidden and uh, can't be flipped over uh, as far as we know. But it does have to be protected uh, because there's a, a small number of very critical assets on the island, uh, including Anderson uh, Air Force Base and, and other things as well. But uh, in the last month, I think it was June 20th, uh, the Deputy Secretary of Defense uh, signed out uh, a memo uh, designating uh, Bill LaPlante as, of course, sort of the, the guy in charge of the acquisition effort overall, perhaps no real surprises there, uh, but also designating Army as the, uh, the service acquisition agent, uh, the lead service for, uh, for the defense of Guam. And I think that makes a lot of sense uh, in terms of especially what is going to be deployed there first in the coming years. Tom, Guam is our most important base in the Western Pacific. We haven't done well so far in providing a robust missile defense there. What does the designation of the Army as lead agent mean, and how is this going to change our approach? Uh, it has been such a critical asset. It's, it's well overdue to be getting more uh, air and missile defenses there. We've had a single FAD battery there for some time for the ballistic threat, uh, but the air defense threat uh, has been woefully uh, neglected for so many years. And you're right, uh, the Army, of course, is being in charge of ground-based air defense uh, for so many years, has not had the capacity to uh, defend everything. You can look at the number of Patriot battalions that they have. It's the among the, the highest op-tempo uh, within the joint force is the, the Patriot uh, operational tempo. And yet we still have folks saying, hey, why isn't there more Army air defense uh, where we need it. And that's that's a fair criticism. It's a fair criticism of uh, sort of the, the lack of capacity overall, which uh, also alludes to kind of the Ukraine thing, Vardal, that I think we'll talk about uh, in a minute. Uh, but JJ, your question of, you know, what, what's different this time, you know, the designation of the Army, I think this is the the basis for beginning to, to get better and the basis for beginning to prioritize, in particular, the the capacity on, on Guam. So I think in the coming years, you're going to see, you're going to see Patriots there. You're also going to see the cruise missile defense, if pick program uh, show up there. Uh, and yes, you are going to see some, uh, some important force structure improvements to the army, uh, army air defense. And so that's, it's going to be the basis. It's kind of a, a hook and a basis in the budget and the planning process for the capacity. And yes, for the, for the manning to, to increase a bit. As they put that together, each service is bringing separate capabilities. How do they get stitched together, and what are we likely to see arriving on Guam or helping defend Guam that's not there today? That, that is the biggest question. That's the hardest question is the stitching them together part. Because although the definition of the uh, ballistic missile defense system has two adjectives in it, layered and integrated, uh, that integrated part has been has been a challenge. And we have, we're essentially separate uh, elements. Think Aegis, Thad, Patriot, that are all queued and all tied together in some respects. But in terms of tight integration for defending one spot like Guam, in terms of integrated fire control, so that they're not all shooting at the same thing, 
you can deconflict fires. That's something that is going to be a challenge. And so putting those pieces together, whether it's swivel chair integration, having two people sit next to each other, you take that shot, I'll take this shot, whether doing it by doctrine and perhaps hopefully doing it uh, in a more sophisticated way. I think you're going to see this evolve over the coming decade. And so you're going to see this capability roll out in phases where you're going to have some initial, as we've seen in, a, in some recent public reporting, uh, patriots and other things show up earlier. And then uh, over the years, you mentioned uh, the other services, Navy slash MDA assets on the Aegis side uh, show up as well. So it's going to be an iterative process coming out in different phases with different uh, additions of different systems over the years. And then likewise, different degrees of tighter integration as well. And obviously, uh, you you mentioned it. Uh, I was going to ask you about Aegis Ashore and the role that Aegis Ashore is going to play in that because obviously everybody is bringing along uh, everything. And as, as you said, Tom, it, it's all about stitching uh, things together. Well, so, go ahead. If I could just for a moment, Vago. Tom, that all sounds very complicated, but we have a number of different windows that people have suggested for when we need to be completely ready to fight in that part of the world. How does getting all of this put together meet up with some of those timelines that are as short as possibly two years from now? Well, uh, so far as I know, the Chinese have not given us a definitive date as to when they're going to come. And there's been a lot of speculation. You're right. We do need to be urgent in terms of prioritizing this. And that, by the way, is exactly why the defense of Guam has been uh, Indo-PACOM's top priority, including top unfunded priority for in, in, in years past. And it's why, uh, you know, a 2032 timeframe is not really ideal for getting this done. And so that's, what, that's, that's exactly why you've seen folks in Congress uh, and folks on the outside yeah, kind of pounding the table and saying, hey, this is the kind of capability you're going to need if you truly want to realign our country's air and missile defense efforts with the, let's just say, 2018 NDS type of approach of great power competition, the likes of Russia and China. Uh, you're going to have to do things like defend Guam and defend bases much, much more uh, as opposed to focusing just on the rogue states. And so, yay, verily, uh, we are in this situation because it's been put off uh, for so long. And having said that, not to let the best be the enemy of the good, uh, getting something there is better than nothing. And so that's why getting something there in terms of phase one uh, in the couple, next couple of years, uh, as I said, with Patriots uh, and the like, that, that if pick the IBCS that just went into IOC and uh, full rate production, Right. All of those are lining up for at least some limited deployment. All defenses are, are limited. All defense systems are limited in, in finite. But that's, that's actually, I would think, a rationalization for the phased approach is get stuff there, start putting it together and improve it over time. I'm just going to uh, say, if it's an unfunded priority, it's not a priority. Right. No, and, it, and it, so, was, you know, it I understand was an it unfunded lead. priority. In years past. Now it's funded. Correct. It but, was unfunded in the past. Correct. C correct. But what I was just saying is it, then it's not a priority, right? And it hasn't been. I'm glad it's now. But ultimately, anytime anybody uses that phrase with me, I find very frustrating because obviously, you know, th that is the connection between strategy and execution. And if you're not funding it, you're just not I'm serious. With about I'm, I'm with you. I'm glad you're serious about it now. <laughs> Uh, you know, now now that the, the dragon is literally, you feel its breath on the back of your neck, oh, we should start running. Maybe we should have started running a little bit sooner. 
I was like, yes, indeed. And that's the difference between the year 2018, when the national defense strategy came out, the the Trump administrations, and 2022, when Guam showed up in the budget. Uh, So that's, that is a difference. And that was, you know, part of the window when you saw it listed with that turn of phrase, unfunded priority list uh, from Indopaycom. So you're absolutely right. Right. (laughs) But that's the window of time. Let's move on because JJ and I both have a couple of questions about Ukraine. It obviously is an air and missile defense war of the first order. It's a testament to uh, Ukraine's uh, defenses. So far, they're stitching together a vast array of systems and actually proving pretty effective in downing stuff. But the Russian strategy also is to expend uh, those U.S. and Western weapons that the Ukrainians uh, are using, whether using Iranian shaheds or soon the roughly 6,000 or so a year that the Russians themselves are going to be co-producing in their factory. We heard from uh, Sam Bendet about that on uh, Monday's show. There's another $400 million in Patriot and uh, NASAM weapons that are going to uh, Ukraine. This is kind of a two-part question. I'm going to take the first one. JJ will take the next one. How many more batteries do the Ukrainians need to protect their grain supplies? Because the Russian strategy now is increasingly risky, striking Ukrainian facilities uh, literally on the other side of the Danube, right? Getting perilously close to our NATO ally and also destroying as many of those grain stocks uh, as possible um, now that Russia has backed away from the grain deal. What kind of capability would they need and how quickly do they need it if they're going to defend this grain that is critical in feeding fast stretches of the world. I, I wish I could give you a number 49 or something like that. Uh, but the short answer is you will never have enough. There will never be enough air defenses to defend everything you'd like to defend. Everything on your critical asset list as opposed to your defended asset list. And so whether the defense of grain takes priority over the defense of command and control in Kiev Ultimately, that's the task of the national defender to make those kinds of trades and to make those kind of calculations. But I'll probably say something that you don't expect here, which is, you know, I, I don't think that just throwing massive amounts of air defenses at this is the answer. It's not feasible, uh, simply. And exhausting American or other friendly air defense uh, stocks in a seemingly unending uh, air defense war, that's probably not tenable. And that's why that's why the action on the ground and the offensive activities and the offensive strike capabilities that the Ukrainians have and need more of, frankly, needs to take precedence because we're not going to be able to sit and play catch uh, with air defenses indefinitely. So, and so that, your answer would be give them more ATACMs, for example, instead of giving them more air defense missiles. Have them, I would give say, them the ability to take those counter batteries, Russian batteries. Huh? It, it, it's always the offense defense mix. That's the rational rationalization, which is why saying that air missile defenses are quote unquote purely defensive has never been true. They're not purely defensive. They exist to buy time and they exist uh, in connection with the rest of the joint force. That's how they make sense. And so ATACMs, to the extent that we can spare them and to the extent that they can be taken from some other combatant command, fine. Some small number, I think, would go a long way to introducing uncertainty uh, on the part of Russia, things like that. So uh, I have that caveat. I know the ATACMs issue is a particular hot potato, but what I would say is some kind of increased standoff capability, whether it's ATACMs, whether it's other things, uh, whether it's drone-delivered 
munitions, or whether it is, you know, ground-launched SDBs, which is in the news, uh, for instance, some other ways to get them that capability. And even if we don't send them any more batteries at the current expenditure rate, when do the Ukrainians run out of weapons to shoot? And when do we run out of the ability to resupply them? Recently, the CEO of Raytheon said that of the $30 billion in weapons that we've already sent to Ukraine, there's only $2 billion in replacements contracted to backfill. So a couple things in that question. One, how many more batteries? I don't know if we send many more batteries in terms of the organizational units and the launchers and things like that. I think what's being done, and you just saw another aid package, and just about every other aid package that comes out has some kind of air defense uh, missile uh, replenishments. And so you're, you're, getting, you're sending more rounds, not necessarily more, more batteries that have to be manned and, and things like that. I know that's a little bit of a distinction, uh, but, but I think an important one. Having said that, uh, our rounds are likewise finite. Uh, we do not have belt-fed patriots uh, with lots and thousands and thousands of extra PAC-3s lying around. And so I, I think, frankly, we need to recognize that this is a finite uh, and, and scarce resource. And for the folks in the policy world, the Taiwan firsters, who don't want to do hardly anything for Ukraine and want to just put everything in Taiwan, what I would say is uh, counter blessings here, because the recognition of the scarcity of these munitions, air defense munitions, strike munitions, the recognition that has dawned on official Washington over the past year about the, the need to produce more would not have happened if not for uh, the Ukraine conflict. And so I think that that has really uh, woken everybody up. We, we can't afford to give them unlimited supplies. And so you are seeing, I think you're going to see in the 24 budget and 25 budget, uh, greater numbers of uh, notwithstanding the, the House Appropriations Committee <laughs> cut to some of these munitions, which was something of a head scratcher. But uh, I think probably in the, in, the, in the 25 budget as well, you'll see some, some increased numbers. And so the good news is that uh, the recognition has dawned on folks and that now we've got a couple years here on our part, on part of our allies, uh, again, Korea, everybody else. Uh, about the need to produce lots of these things and get them out lots of places. Just uh, very briefly, because we're running short of time, what's the rate and quantity we should be producing at as opposed to what we are? Because there is a sense that on virtually, and and granted, you don't want to make yesterday's missiles. You want to make them newer, easier to produce. The Russians are at three shifts a day. They're at a full war economy. Obviously, they're the ones who started this. Do we need to be doing more stuff because at the end of the day, those inventories matter. They're really important. And we're dealing with the Chinese that are a far more demanding threat than what the Ukrainians are seeing from the Russians at this point. I mean, the, well, the Chinese have vaster stockpiles of exactly the weapons that will be hitting the small number of bases that we need to be defending. That's exactly right. The defended area of Guam is dramatically less than that of Ukraine. You don't have just a whole lot of places to, to move things or hide them, as I said before. Uh, and you're right. The air and missile threat for Guam, the perfect air and missile defense problem, is orders of magnitude greater probably than what you're seeing uh, in Ukraine. So that's why you're getting a glimpse of the magnitude of the problem here. We're getting a, a recognition of the need to of, uh, for greater quantities of these things. 
Uh, and so the, the next several years will be critical in terms of acting on that uh, intellectual recognition of the problem. Tom Carrico, Director of the Air and Missile Defense Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks so much for joining us, and we look forward to your being back every month. Hey, thanks, Vago and JJ. And again, uh, none of this matters if you're dead, and that's why you need air defense. And hey, if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts. Cabas Ships, hosted by Chris Cabas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our new technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. And joining us now is Ty Thomas, a retired United States Air Force Lieutenant General who served as the Deputy Commander of U.S. Pacific Air Forces. He is now the Executive Vice President and the Head of Air and Space at Matreya, an innovative company that last month became the first commercial firm to refuel a U.S. Air Force aircraft. Ty, thanks so very much for joining us. It's an honor and pleasure having you on the Air Power Podcast. Yeah, thanks, Vago. It's great to join you. Um, this is a little bit unusual for, for me personally and Matreya. Um, we tend to keep our heads down and just get things done. But as you mentioned, there's some really uh, significant historical events that have occurred in commercial air refueling, and I'm glad to be able to have the opportunity to talk about it with you. We're very excited. It was terrific seeing you and, and Justin Johnson aboard uh, your pristine former Singapore Air Force KC-135 that you guys had the, at the Royal International uh, Air Tattoo. Uh, specific shout out to having one of the best logos in the business. And Thank we're going to... And we're going to talk about the recent air refueling uh, first in a moment, but I wanted to first ask about the company's strategy, which you guys have been working methodically for a long period of time. The notion of commercial air refueling capability delivered to the customer when the customer needs it and scaling to what the customer needs. Why is this an important capability and how can it help the U.S. Air Force? which has actually a growing need for aerial refueling, even as it acquires new aircraft like the KC-46? Vago, that's a fantastic question. And the, the answer is not necessarily intuitive, but I'll start with just um, pointing out that air refueling, which we're talking about, is one element of the overall uh, Matreya enterprise. As you mentioned, you know, effects as a service is what we do. And we do it in a lot of other business units, mission areas, whether it's manned airborne ISR, cyber, space, all kinds of things. But on, on air refueling in particular, what we saw and what we built a, you know, from whole cloth, so to speak, a business unit about was the idea that there's always going to be some or has to be some organic tanking capability in, a, in national air forces. Um, sometimes it's shared, sometimes it's internal. The USAF, obviously, the biggest example of being internal. But as big as those forces can be, the air tanker forces, there's always going to be unserved and underserved users. You know, one explanation for that for the U.S. Air Force, you know, that I saw in my several assignments at Air Mobility Command is that during daily competition, some would refer to as peacetime, but really things short of conflict and, and uh, uh, major contingencies, you don't have your full force mobilized, right? And in the Air Force, the U.S. Air Force, the Guard and Reserve is like two-thirds of your tanker force. Now, they're awesome. They volunteer, but a third of your force is just immediately accessible during you know, any given day during daily competition. When you don't have receivers that get a tanker because they fall on the cutting room floor in the JCS priority system, they're looking for somebody to help. That's where commercial tanking, that's where Matreya and our four KC-135Rs 
fit in. And it's not just for the U.S. Air Force, for the Navy and Marine Corps. We can talk about that a bit, too. Commercial tanking makes sense if it can be equally effective while saving money. You're operating a tanker the Air Force has a lot of experience with, and you're manning those aircraft with pilots and air crew that are themselves former airmen. It's the same plane, similarly qualified people. How can you deliver this service for less than what the government is already paying? Yeah, I don't think we can. And, and that's actually not our competitive advantage. What our competitive advantage is identifying what the opportunity cost is when you don't have a tanker. When the receiver unit doesn't have a tanker and they have to do other things and experience other costs, then we become very attractive economically as well as operational. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're moving a six ship or maybe even a 12 ship F-22s from Langley out to Nellis uh, for a red flag exercise. Or maybe it's some other event that's maybe not quite as high enough uh, priority on the JCS party system and they don't get support from an organic AMC tanker. Those fighters are going to have to, you know, hopscotch across the country and do one, maybe two fuel stops as a minimum. And for anybody that's familiar with fighter drags like that, you're going to leave aircraft behind. You're going to have some kind of problem. Often, if one aircraft is uh, down for maintenance on the turn there, uh, you might leave two. And so let's just use that example. And so your 10 ship make it to, makes it to Nellis instead of your 12 ship. And those two stragglers don't show up until four days later. They've missed the orientation sorties. They've missed the initial briefs. Let's say it's a two-week uh, exercise out there. They've missed like, you know, a good quarter of the training value of going all the way out to Nellis. If instead you didn't have to make those stops, you got all your Raptors across the country into Nellis without any casualties at all, and everybody was there to start the training, you start to see the opportunity cost that was paid of not having a tanker. Instead, you get them a tray of KC-135, you do five hours of refueling to get them across the country, and you avoid all of that uncertainty, all of that um, risk that's created by having to stop a couple of times for gas with your 12 ship. Hope that makes sense, but that's a, one of many, many examples that we've laid out to the various users out there. And one of the other cases uh, that you guys make is you're the guys making this investment, keeping it in reserve, and it's basically tanking by the hour as the customer needs it, right? So you're the one maintaining the currency, maintaining the equipment, doing the D checks and making sure that the capability uh, is available, right? So that's another part of the equation, which is what you guys are doing on intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance capability. You're making the investment, you're making it available to the customer when they need it. Vago, you're absolutely right. I mean, in the model that we have, Matreya assumes a massive amount of risk. We have to be so diligent about how we maintain our airplanes, how we crew our airplanes, the investments we make to be in a position to perform. Um, and yet we think we can do that. And we believe in the customer that once we get that first contact with them, they're going to want more. For example, you mentioned the RC-135 and the E-3 was on that same story or made same exercise called Resolute Hunter. The feedback that we got from the units was, can you please come back? Can we please do more of this? And so we're talking with Air Combat Command about additional exercises to be doing later on in the year here. The U.S. Navy has been using contract tanking for some time. Your competitor, Omega, uh, has been doing that for a couple of years now. And in fact, the U.S. Air Force refueling that you guys executed was actually under the Navy contract. You guys have been working towards this 
capability for a long time, working a whole bunch of issues. I think a special shout out goes out to Andrew Hunter, uh, the Air Force Acquisition Chief, who did clear uh, some of the obstacles in your guys' path. What, what did it take, Ty, to make this happen ultimately under the Navy contract? Well, actually, you know, in terms of the mechanics of getting, you know, USAP receivers to, to get service from the tray under that contract, it's simpler than you might think once you get started in the process. The, the tanker receiver pair has to be cleared. The air refilling certification agency has been very, very helpful in being able to do that. I think we've probably got 15, uh, it's not quite that many, um, but close to that, Air Force receivers cleared. Now you think that that's automatic. Hey, it's a KC-135, the U.S. flies them, U.S. Air Force flies them, but it still has to be done. You go through that process and NAVAIR does it as well. But then once that's on there, the USAF unit just has to notify the program managers inside NAVAIR and uh, produce the funding. That's obviously got to happen. And then it gets scheduled and we execute it. So there's all kinds of, and you referred to Andrew Hunter and, and his SAF AQ team have been really helpful that go into airworthiness certifications and things of that nature, which just are simply necessary to be done if you're not, you know, a sovereign military asset. But um, we've gotten through those things. And so I would say at this point, the path is very, very clear for additional expansion of uh, support to USAF receivers. Good deal. Maitreya has four 135Rs right now. We've seen this demonstration. What else are your aircraft up to? And what do you need to see from the Air Force or DOD generally in order to move this into an operational capability? Well, in terms of um, what our aircraft are up to right now, still the bulk of our uh, support goes to the U.S. Navy and U.S. Marine Corps as the, you know, the holders of the contract. You know, that amounts to somewhere between 2000 2500 a year on average. It's uh, going up, actually, so we're really happy about that. And then there's foreign military sales users. Uh, we drug Canadian Hornets across the Atlantic last fall. Uh, we're looking at some additional engagements. Vago, we, we just talked about 20 different air chiefs at Riyadh. It was and, and the Air Chiefs Conference in London. It was fantastic. And then, of course, uh, JJ, we're, we're working with the U.S. Air Force. And so as we broaden, it's ACC, it's PACAF, it's USAFE, it's Air Force Global Strike Command, it's Air Education Training Command. Brian Robinson, the commander there, a, a dear friend of mine, he came and, and visited our Matreya team out there. I couldn't talk with him because of where I'm at in my two-year time frame, but they're interested as well. So we're going to grow that out. We need to continue to grow out and uh, you know, fully utilize the capacity that we have. We, we think that's uh, that's likely to happen and likely to happen fairly soon. We also need to look at it in the lens of, you know, what are the type of requirements that the USAF user is, is asking us to do? Training, exercises, force movements, all that stuff works perfectly well for us. We start to get to a limit, you know, that, which is the borderline of commercial ops. And you see it both in, you know, commercial airlift, you know, that Transcom taps into and, and uh and other sources of commercial support to military operations. There's eventually a limit, and and uh, you know there's some operations that we're not going to be able to support, but we can replace things that the organic fleets would otherwise be doing, so that they can go forward and they can engage in the operations that only sovereign national fleets can do. And a quick follow up on that: during the engagement that we're talking about, you refueled two other 135 airframe aircraft, similar size. What, if any, barriers remain before you can refuel fighters and other aircraft for the Air Force? None. I mean, we are cleared on the F-22, the F-35, the F-16, all variants of the F-15 to include the new EX. Uh, we're still working on getting the A-10. I think that's just a matter of priorities for ACC. So 
And we're already refilling all the Navy fighters. So Hornets, F-35B, F-35C, all that stuff is is in progress or done already. One of the things that you recognize pretty quickly when you cover the Air Force is that the Air Force does not have enough aerial refueling capability uh, and capacity right now. KC-10s, your uh, former uh, airplane, the, the extender, is uh, going out of service. And with it is an enormous ability to move gas. The KC-46 has been coming online a little more slowly. The Air Force is looking at a stealth tanker it wants to develop in order to be able to operate in contested airspace. And then you've also got this new smaller tanker to be able to operate from uh, some uh, forward airfields. At the end of the day, it's all about scaling, Ty. And, And you guys have been working a lot of very thoughtful things, for example, buying relatively low time or at least a third lower hours from the uh, Singaporean KC-135s. How do you scale this capacity? And what's the roadmap? And what does this fleet and force look like, say, in a decade? Because you guys are working a whole number of very thoughtful options, both you know, getting airplanes from the market, being able to modify airplanes as necessary. Walk us through what this looks like and the kind of enterprise and the capability you'll be able to deliver. Because each aircraft you're delivering in the rear with this capability on a training side frees up an operational U.S. Air Force flag tanker to go forward and conduct operations, right? So you're freeing airplanes up to do stuff operationally by taking care of this training, the fighter drags, all of the rear area missions. What does this force and fleet look like when you look out there in another decade? And what has to happen to sort of get you there? Yeah, these are all great questions. So, I mean, the first point I'll I'll mention is, yes, I'm sad to see the mighty extender go as well. Uh, That was my first military airplane. And uh, but, you know, you got to move forward. And in this case, the USAF made those choices. And uh, no matter I mean, unless the fleet gets all the way back up into the 600s, there's always going to be these shortfalls. So what is Matreya doing? First, you know, second point there then is, the KC-135 is an awesome machine. The ones that we have are awesome machines. The USAF is going to maintain that ecosystem. I, I mean, if you just look at the numbers through the 2040s, just based on the recapitalization plans. So that is encouraging to us because we're now part of that ecosystem. And there are, you know, these aren't the only KC-135s that could potentially be available out there in the world to grow our enterprise. And we are working mightily, as you've noticed, to grow the customer base. And it's out there and it's exciting. And when we talk to people, they get excited. And, and their questions then are, you know, how do we access you and what are the mechanisms to do that? So 10 years from now, I think we, 10 years, we have a larger KC-135 fleet and uh, the ability to service a broader base of customers. At some point, when you start to look at the wind down of the KC-135 ecosystem, we may have to change the structure of our fleet. And that's exciting too, because then we're starting to talk about different options. I don't think we as commercial providers, anybody ever get into the business of, you know, the niche that Mike Minahan and, and Frank Kendall are talking about, about, you know, going forward and being able to refuel in some of the most difficult places in the world for air assets to operate. The sovereign air forces are going to have to do that. But you've nailed it. When they're out forward doing that and they need capacity elsewhere, there's a place for us to be able to do that, helping with air bridges or helping continuation training or, or upgrade training that's still going to have to go on even in the midst of a major conflict. And just before we part, Ty, you might want your name on the frame rail of another KC-10. You think you'll be able to get any of those uh, into the fleet at Matreya? Well, JJ, that's uh, 
that's a great question. A, yes, it would be awesome for, for me to be flying the Mighty Extender again. But there's a complication for us as commercial operators, and particularly with the majority of our market being the U.S. military, Navy, Marine Corps, and Air Force. And that's that the law says if you procure an excess defense article and then you're using it to offer services, you can't offer those services back to the U.S. government with a previously U.S.-owned military asset. So right now, uh, the capacity that we have and the capacity that we think that we can obtain elsewhere besides the U.S. military, we, we think that we're going to be good. But if we're you know hugely successful in 10 years from now, to your question on that, if we have enough foreign customers and we can dedicate assets specifically to them, your question then becomes very relevant. But we'll have to get to that point. It'd be very exciting if we were to get there. Ty Thomas, Vice President and Head of the Air and Space Group at Matreya, congratulations on successfully publicly passing gas. And thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. Thanks, JJ. It's been great to join you and uh, look forward to all the great reporting you guys are going to be doing. Over. Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power Podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.